You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, I'm actually going to step back and be interviewed by Michelle Yuet. Now, on today's episode, we're going to cover topics that evolve around investment banking, such as why would you want to hire an investment banker? What are all the steps that take place when selling a company? Why does someone choose to sell their company? And much more. All right, let's begin this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Hi, Sean. You always strike us as the host of the Silicon Valley Podcast, but you haven't shared the part of you as an investment banker. Let's delve deeper into the who this, the host of the Silicon Valley podcast is. Would you give us an introduction about you as the investment banker? Michelle, thank you for being the host on this week's episode. I'm super excited to be here as a guest. So a little bit about myself, my history. I lived overseas in China for about five years, total overseas, about eight years amongst several countries. I came back to the US, got heavily involved in the startup ecosystem. I was the investment director for the second oldest angel group in Silicon Valley. I worked for a company that helped uh, companies from US and China do roadshows, set up operations in, in different countries back and forth. And then I pivoted into investment banking, where I currently uh, focus on mergers, acquisition, raising growth capital, and secondaries. So that's a little bit about myself. So why would someone want to hire an investment banker? There's actually many reasons why someone would. One of the reasons is, well, you're putting a brand next to your company. An investment bank, they don't take on all the opportunities that come their way. They're very selective. And many, many reasons why they would be. They want to close deals. In most cases, the majority of the money they make is off the success of the transaction. So if the transaction doesn't close, many times they'll actually lose money on the process with all the man hours that go into it. So they really only want to take clients, in most cases, that I mean, I can't speak for all investment banks, but cases that they pretty confident that there's a good chance that they will succeed. And so private equity groups, institution, family offices, they know this in advance. They know if a private or an investment bank is working with someone, they've already been screened. They've already been vetted. So that's one reason. Another reason is, well, these deals get very heated, emotional. On one side, you have this person that put in years and years of their life, every waking moment to build this company. And on the other side, you have someone that is looking at all the risks that are saying, okay, how can I pull value from this transaction? What price do I need? And there's negotiations that are involved. And with that, you know, sometimes some things could be said that one party might misunderstand, one party might get a little emotional, maybe not even because of that conversation, but just because of things outside that happen in their life that they pull in. Well, if there's an investment banker, a middle person there, it could be their fault. They could take the heat. And when the transaction is over, they step away. So everyone has someone to blame, that middle person that won't be there long-term. That's another reason. It also allows the owners to focus on their business. The business still has to grow, has to hit these milestones during this transaction. And a lot of people don't understand the time that these transactions take. A lot of them are you know, six to nine months, sometimes longer, sometimes shorter. That's a long time. And if you're focused away from your daily task is running this company into this transaction, you might miss some milestones and that could greatly affect the value of the company. Also, it's great to read of 
how to ride a bicycle, but unless you've actually ridden a bicycle, it's not the same thing. Same with selling a company. Do you really want to learn the whole process, the conversations, the details, the the lingo, the speech, all these terms, building the relationship, all those things? Do you want to really learn those on the company that you spent so so many years building? Or would you rather work with someone that this is all they do? They've done this many times before. They've seen it. They see where there's the hiccups. They see where there's the problems. They know the steps. They have a process that's a proven process to work with. There's also the, well, the mental wellness aspect. Mentioning these processes get emotional. There's ups and downs. There's ups and downs. You're heavily invested. You're heavily involved. Having an outside party kind of, you know, tell you the lay of the land, give you an overview of what's really happening is immensely valuable. So there's so many reasons, and I didn't even mention all of them, that you might want to consider using an investment banker when selling your company. So once again, that you have a brand behind you, you have someone that's success-driven, that they want to go through this transaction and guide it, making sure that it keeps moving along. You're able to focus on your company because other people are focusing on that transaction. You're not learning on your own. You're leveraging the experience of someone else, another team. You're able to have someone to consult, keep you mentally aware, mentally calm during this whole process. And there's much more. So there's many reasons why someone might consider thinking of working with an investment banker when selling their company. I like that. But there's one question is, why do companies decide to sell the businesses in the first place? Well, there's many reasons, just like working with an investment banker, why someone might want to sell a business. They could, well, just believe it's time. Maybe they've been at this business for years and they're bored of it. They don't want to spend any more of their life. And they're just like, it's time for me to move on, do something else. I have other interests. I've started a side project that's really going good. Or it's increased in such value that it's kind of outgrown them or they're going, you know, my skill set is took it to here. I can't really take it farther. I need someone else involved and I don't want that. So I'd rather just sell it. Or maybe they think, wow. I've grown this thing. If I cash out now, I could retire. I could do other things in my life. I could do my hobbies. I could travel. I could see my family more. There could be a ton of reasons why someone wants to sell right now. Or maybe they don't have the choice. And we say that there's those three Ds. There's death, disease, divorce. Maybe one of those happened and they don't have the option. They have to sell right now. Maybe not the ideal time, but just because of life situations, it's okay, we have to go through with it. Or maybe they're just curious. Maybe they think, well, I don't want to sell right now, or maybe I do, but someone just approached me. They approached with an unsolicited acquisition offer. Some private equity group or some strategic buyer and said, hey, you know, we're really interested in, in acquiring your company. What would you sell it for? And you're not really sure, but you're thinking, well, you know, maybe I should just go out, see what the market would, would pay for it. And if it is the right number, you know, maybe this is a good time. Maybe I could start doing those other things, you know, and they start thinking like, well, maybe there's other things I want to do right now. So it's really either they want to sell it because, you know, it's time in their life to do it, or they have no choice. They have to sell it, or they're just kind of curious of, you know, what is this thing that I've built? What's it worth? And they just start thinking about other possibilities with their life. I mean, time is precious. So there's many reasons why someone might consider selling. And those are some of the reasons. What are the steps involved 
with the selling of business? Michelle, great question. Okay, the process, some people break it down into four parts. We're going to break it down to three phases. Okay, the first is pre-marketing preparation. What I mean by pre-marketing preparation, you're gathering all the materials for the data room, all right? Like the financials, the org chart, you're developing the buyer's list from this information, who you're going to go out to, whose investment thesis lines with this company, you know, maybe the sector, maybe the deal size, the EBITDA, this company, the um, geographic location. So you're going out, you're creating this buyer list and you're gathering this information and you're preparing the marketing materials. Now, marketing materials, it could be a blind profile and the confidential information memorandum, SIM. Now, the blind profile, what is that? It's a document that maybe one or two pages that gives information on the company, but you don't know what which company it is. You'll know the sector, what they're working on, maybe some financials, the last three years, some of the numbers, what the next two, three years of performance looks like. You'll get enough information that you're curious to find out more, right? So you're creating all this marketing material then. That's phase one. Now, phase two, you're going out and marketing it. You're taking that buyer's list that you've created. You could have spent hundreds of hours, maybe not hundreds, but say 100 hours or something on this buyer list. Because think about it. If you're spending 15 minutes or so finding each buyer, you have a 1,000 potential buyers you're reaching out to. You're customizing emails. I'm not sure. I mean, the, the the time spent to gather this information for the buyers is quite extensive in most situations, but you're going out. You're reaching out to all these people and private equity groups, high net worth individuals, family offices, whoever, which aligns with this company and going, hey, here's a blind profile, giving them phone calls. You're reaching out to your network that you've built and contacting, you know, are you interested in finding out more information? They say, yes. You get them to sign an NDA, then you send them that confidential information memorandum, that SIM, that 60-page, potentially 60-page document you created. And then you go into the next where it's, okay, you're narrowing it down. You've collected you know, LOIs in that marketing phase. You're collecting it down to that one person or group that is potentially going to buy it. And then you're negotiating you're going to do diligence and then you're closing. So think pre-market preparation, marketing, then negotiation and documentation as kind of the three phases. And we could dive deeper if you want, but that's a pretty good overview of the process for selling a company if you run an active process with an investment bank. So you're gathering all the information, creating the market material, getting the buyer's list, you're going out to market, you're contacting them, you're getting NDA signed. They're looking at it. You're answering the calls. You're, you know, responding. You're getting letters of intent or indication of interest. Then letters of intent. You're finding your dance partner. You're going into the due diligence. You're negotiating. You're closing the deal. So that's kind of the whole process for selling a company, and it's actually very similar to raising capital. And if you want to find out more information about that, we did an amazing episode just a couple months ago with Nathan, who's the founder of Founder Suite. So look into our archives on the Silicon Valley podcast and check out that episode where we really go into step-by-step process of raising capital for your startup. And it's a very, very similar process, to be honest. And also our other archives, there's so much good information on this podcast. I'm sorry, I know shameless plug, but I'm really proud of everything that we've created. You mentioned a data room. What is that? 
And can you tell us a little bit more about the information that goes in it? Oh, gosh. There's so much information that goes in a data room. It's literally everything you can think of for a company. I mean, you want to create this as thoroughly as possible because, well, there's a saying, you know, time kills all deals. You want, if anyone has a question, you want to be able to supply them with an answer. You want to use this data information there, create all the marketing materials. You want answers already known before they're asked. So think about some of these things and the lists are quite extensive. It could be articles of incorporation. Well, actually, here are some items that are going to be asked to be in a data room. The articles of incorporation, a cap table, the org chart, marketing materials, metrics for the company, pro forma, financials, the balance sheet, the P&L, cash flow. The list goes on and on. Pending litigation, lawsuits, if there's key man insurance policies, cybersecurity policy. If there's something to do with the company, it's going to be in the data room. It's going to be very thorough. And that's great because as you're creating the market material, you reference it. As you're getting ready for management meetings, you're referencing it. When you're doing the due diligence, you're giving them access, you reference. It's so key to the whole process. And getting it really built out early and thoroughly just helps immensely. When marketing company, won't all your competitors know that you are selling your company? How do you keep reselling a company a secret? Also, why would you want to keep it as a secret that you are selling your company? Oh, there's a lot there. Okay, so ideally, if you're mar- when you're marketing the company, you're using the blind profile, correct? So it doesn't have enough information for them to pinpoint what company it is. Now, they might have kind of a guess, especially if it's a one of those sectors where there's only a, areas where there's only a few players, but they shouldn't know exactly. So one, you know, the information that's told is key. Having an, a third party market in it and answering questions, that's key. There's a lot of ways to go about doing it. And you, know, you don't necessarily need just one blind profile or one SIM, or you know, there could be different tiers to this, you know, depending on how much confidentiality your client really wants. And also how broad or narrow the outreach is. That's another way to keep things from the, the general public or the masses to know. And why would someone want to do this? Well, if you're selling a company, Someone could come around and poach your employees. Someone could go to your vendors and go, hey, listen, they're selling. They might have problems paying you. Or they may go to your key customers and go, hey, you you know, something's going on there. You should switch to us. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why you don't want people to know you're selling your company. Your company, the employees in many situations are so valuable. If you were to hear the company you're working for being sold, would you stick around in every case or would you start going, oh my gosh, maybe I should look for something else? There's that uncertainty. There's that doubt. There's that, well, fear in many cases. So you don't really want people in most situations to know that you're trying to sell your company. There's many things that could come back and hit you if when people know. People might try to take advantage of it. People might leverage it against you. People, you don't know how manipulative groups or that could be with that information. So using an investment banker or a third party can help keep it secret. You don't want people to know because you don't know the tactics they'll use with that information against you, both internally and externally. What are some of the components 
that going to a deal, many is it always all cash and closing, or is there a mix of possibilities in the offers? That's a good question. And that well, we asked that at the very beginning. You know, what kind of range valuation do you want? Cash, earnout, seller's note, are you okay with a the rollover? There's so many things that could be components of an offer that, well, just to go in a little bit of information, you have the possibility of cash. Now, this buyer gives the seller cash. He's happy or she's happy, but normally that will be the lowest amount for the transaction. Or maybe you want more. Well, maybe you're, you're as a seller, okay with taking a little risk if you're getting paid a little bit more, meaning maybe you get this much cash now and then there's a seller's note where you'll get paid over a certain amount of time. And these seller notes could be very creative. Maybe it goes, you know, over four years, you get paid, hypothetically, we'll say 4 million, you'll get paid a million every year for four years. Or maybe you have a holiday for the first year and then a million, then 2 million at the end. Or maybe it's tied to earnings where you'll get 4 million, but you'll get 500,000 each of the years if it hits this number and then a balloon payment at the end. Or there's so many ways around the seller's note. Same with earnouts. Earnouts are company hits this number, maybe it's tied to revenue, maybe it's tied to EBITDA, maybe it's tied to uh, key clients staying. Who knows? There's so many things you could be tied to. You'll get this amount of money and then roll over. Let's take some of that money into the new company in form of stock that you can get paid out later when that exits or there's some type of transaction. There's many ways to structure it depending on, well, both parties, what they want. Some just want, hey, give me the highest cash number. That's it. Others are saying, hey, I'm okay with it being very creative. I want the highest number. So it's very, very creative, all the possibilities. And those are things that you need to have discussions about with people. What are the consequences with this or the possible consequences? What are the possible opportunities that this may have for you? How will this affect your life? How does this affect your tax planning with your wealth strategy, your investment? Talk to your experts, talk to your tax advisors, your wealth planners, your lawyers, the investors. Talk to all these people about which of these affects you in what ways. But there's many different ways to structure a deal. So just take that to heart. There's no set, nothing set in stone. It's all about how creative and how flexible people are and that security versus risk and juggling that for having the outcome that you and the buyer are both comfortable with. May not be 100% happy, but comfortable with, you know, have that conversation. Why would an investment banker go out to so many different groups when trying to sell a company? Oh, you're referring back to when I said, maybe you get that buyer's list of a thousand buyers. Well, think of this as a funnel. And if you only go out to end the market as a whole, if you only go out to a few people, how do you know there's not this other person that you didn't contact that might offer the most? You don't. So by going out to a very broad range, so I mentioned, I think a thousand people in my example, or a thousand private equity groups, you know, or a mix of strategics, family officers, that are just a thousand potential buyers. You'll pretty much have a good understanding of what the market is willing to bear, especially if you've done a lot of research in advance and really pinpointed and tailored each of those, those groups you're going out to. So you know that they are key investors or that their investment thesis fits the company that you're working with. 
you go out to that many, you, you pretty much know that what the market is bearing. Also, when you're talking to these groups, you don't really know 100% what situation they currently are in. Maybe they're currently in another deal and they don't have the bandwidth to look at another opportunity. Maybe they just invested uh, the last of their capital and they're about to raise their next fund. And so they're looking at, they look at your company, but you got to wait a couple months and you just missed that window for them to be interested. Or maybe it's the thing where before their investment thesis said this and you fit that, but really now they're looking for some other type of, of company to be an add-on or a platform or something. There's just, you don't know what's going on with these groups that maybe their investment thesis fits the company you're working for. And if you only pinpointed a few of these groups, since you don't know what's really happening internally, you might be able to guess the rumors, conversations, but maybe those, say 10, maybe those 10, only really three or four at this moment in time can look at your deal. Now let's expand that out to a thousand. Okay. So you have this huge funnel narrowing it down based on just, you know, outside circumstances and you keep narrowing it down. So you want a few offers on the table to pick from. There's a saying, one deal is no deal or one, you know, one buyer is no buyer because there's not that competitive, that urgency. There's not that fallback. There's not a lot of reasons that that person's going to put their best offer out there. And if there's a few people that towards that end of that funnel that are submitting letters of intent, that you've had conversations with, that have gone through the SIM, that have asked questions, you're making it so the situation encourages everyone to put their best offer on the table. And then you have different situations or different things out there to choose from. And as the seller, maybe one offer really appeals to you. Maybe one doesn't. Maybe who's making that offer really appeals to you. The personality, maybe the personality of one buyer and another, same offers. Maybe one you really enjoy, you really like. The other don't think the culture fits there for the company. I mean, you want to kind of have options. So having that big funnel at the top, narrowing it down, gives you a lot to choose from towards that bottom. And so hopefully it allows it so you get the best, you're not leaving money on the table, you're ending up with who you want or the the end buyer of the options and choices are amazing. And if something goes wrong, you have others to fall back on quickly and you don't have to run the whole process again. So there's many reasons to go out to so many, but confidentiality, we talked about that. So maybe that's a reason not to go out to so many. Maybe you just want to go out to that niche, or maybe you're already in talks with one and you just want someone to help guide you through that process with that one specifically. So there's many situations and conversations to have, but just letting you know, it doesn't always have to be to a thousand or 2000 or 4,000 potential buyers. It could be a very narrow group that you're already in conversations with, or it could be that broad group. So hope that helped. What happens to the owners of a company during this time? Is this an emotional process? Well, Michelle, you can imagine someone that spent years building this company where maybe every moment has been put into the growth. Maybe they, I don't know, gone through a divorce because of it. Maybe their kids aren't talking to them. Maybe they mortgaged their house. Maybe there's been so many situations that have happened to grow this company. And now there's that potential exit that it's going to be a roller coaster ride. 
in many situations, the path is, okay, I'm about to sell. I'm super excited. Okay, I go out to market. Wait a second. I'm not getting the immediate response. I was hoping, okay, now I'm feeling sad. Hey, we're getting some offers. All right, now I'm feeling excited again. Okay, now we're negotiating some of the terms. Wait a second. I feel a little offended or, hey, these aren't the offers I want. Or I'm getting pushback. Why are you asking me these questions? There's ups and downs, ups and downs through this whole process on all sides and everyone involved. So it is an emotional roller coaster. And then plus, that's just happening in the deal itself. What about external factors? Maybe there's people in your family that have said, hey, you promised us this would be done in three months, four months. Don't ask me why they would say that time, but they said that and we're six, seven months in. And they're going, wait, you promised us a vacation. We're upset. Or maybe a couple months in, a significant other has already started spending a ton of money that they haven't gotten yet from the sale. And there's that pressure. Or maybe there's some of the milestones that everyone was marketing that they were going to hit. Maybe there's been some changes. And now there's that fear that they won't hit those milestones. The valuation will go down. Or maybe there's, who knows? Life is so crazy. Who could really predict five years ago what would have happened, where we would have been right now, or six, seven years ago, what would have happened in 2000? No one knows what's really happening from day to day. You can't be 100% certain. And there's so many things that are happening in the world and that, that, well, these are all outside forces on this transaction that you're taking in. So it's an emotional roller coaster and it's a difficult experience, but. No, it, that's something that to have conversations with other people that have gone through it, get their advice. There's a couple of interviews that we've done in the past. Jerome Fogel, who's a lawyer, he talks about the process. Sam Wong, he talked about the process he went through. He sold three companies. One, he did himself. Two, with an investment banker. And he talks about the process there, the mental game. Chucky Orbita, we interviewed him on the Super Bowl mindset for the entrepreneur. There's a whole group that have been interviewed on this podcast that talk about mental wellness of founders and that that stress that goes that happens when your company's getting acquired or when your company's going public or there's that major transaction. So look in our archive and do a little bit of listening, but you'll see it is very, very common for people to talk about just the stress and anxiety that happens during this process. And well, all the more reason to have someone or people with you working with you step each step of the way so that they can, well, help you relax, help you breathe, help you understand the process that's happening, the next steps and what's going on. What are some possible metrics that a buyer will look at when analyzing company that they are looking on buying? Company by company. But for example, maybe for a SaaS company, software as a service, maybe they'll look at cost of acquiring a customer, CAC and lifetime value and the monthly reoccurring rate and the annual reoccurring rate and the net promoter score and traffic to site review. and there's so many metrics and it's industry specifics. Basically, there's a ton of information online or whoever you're working with, your key people on your team, talk to them. These are a lot of these numbers are numbers your company 
probably is already tracking and has tracked for years and just putting that together and going, okay, what are the key value drivers for this company, for this industry? How do we rank compared to those kind of standards? Are we doing better? Are we doing worse? How can we push those up? And having data that you've been tracking that you can show, they're going to ask, well, possibly when acquiring your company, hey, what's the lifetime value of a customer and how has it changed over the last few years? Or tell us about the annual recurring rate over the last few years. Or they want to see that history, kind of things that you've done, things that have changed. So they can kind of get an idea of current and the future, what's going to happen and the trends in it, what's happening, what's been tried. But there's so many metrics that companies are kind of measured against. The information is out there, just search for it. And it's something that when you're starting your company, earlier you're tracking, in most situations, the better. So look at it because you're able to gauge throughout the life cycle of your company so that when that time comes, you have an idea of where you should be, where you're going, what people are looking at. And you know, you've kind of tweaked this and tweaked that to make sure that the right things you're monitoring, you're not wasting your time on things that aren't really a value, that your focus is of what's driving that key value for your company. And so you'll be in a really good position when it's that time, when you're ready to exit. How does one go about putting a value on their company? Well, okay. So Michelle, that is, you'll hear many valuation experts say, hey, it's more of an art than a science. And there's so many ways to put a value on a company, whether it's president's transactions, you know, other transactions of similar companies in the space, whether it's the how much does it cost to replace the company that that build, whether it's a multiple, maybe it's well, companies in this size in this sector normally trade for five times EBITDA or one and a half times revenue, or companies in this size go by seller discretionary earnings, and companies by this size go by EBITDA and, and this or maybe discounted cash flow analysis. There's all these different ways that people go about kind of putting that range around what a company's value is. But ultimately, it, you know, it's really what the market decides, what the market bears. It could be great to say, hey, my company has this huge valuation, but if there's not that buyer, does it really have that valuation? It is not, you know, have that investor, that person to exit. Does it really have that? So you can get an idea from all those things that I'd mentioned before. And a lot of people put this range of, hey, we think your company's worth between 18 and 22 million. And at the end of the day, it's really what that person's gonna acquire it. And we talked about kind of deal terms in that earlier about cash versus earnouts versus seller notes, but that all comes into that final price where maybe the price is this much if it's all cash and then it's a little higher if you're a little bit more flexible with terms and then it's a even higher than that if you're a lot more flexible with how the payment is. So there's ranges for everything. Uh, it's very difficult. And going back to it's more of an art than a science. We've had valuation, ex- valuation experts on the show in the past that you can check out their episodes and they'll tell you it's a difficult thing to do. But you know, we mentioned just that last question, the key value drivers for your company. Focus on that. Focus on building that 
successful business, that strong business. And, you know, you'll get those multiples, hopefully, that you're very happy with. And also, I didn't even mention it. I mean, the outside world changes these valuations so much dependent on you know, the economy, you know, if it's a buyer's market, seller's market, all these things. So, oh, Joe Sienski, we interviewed him before. He's uh, one of the top business coaches in Silicon Valley. His whole thing was just building a strong company, focus on that. And you know, based on the other information we gave today, check out some of those old episodes. I think there's a lot of useful information there. Is there some anything else that our listeners should know about before wrapping up? Oh, gosh. I mean, we covered a lot. We covered why someone might want to use an investment banker um, so they focus on their business, run a process that has been tried and true. Uh, we've talked about you know, the process itself with the pre-market and marketing and the negotiation due diligence. We talked about value drivers, metrics that people might want to look for. We talked about you know, the valuations being more of an art than a science. We talked about why keeping a company, you know, maybe it's good to kind of tell more of the world in a broad, broad outreach or more of a narrow. We've talked about why someone might want to sell a company or not sell a company or have to sell a company. I mean, we talked a ton of things. I think one thing to also talk about is, you know, there's so much information online. Some of it's fantastic. Some of it is, well, they always say, you know, not always, but you'll hear the free information is worth the price you get for it. There's a lot of information online that as you read and as you study it, you go, wait a second, this doesn't sound right. So check who's putting the information out there, kind of check their credibility. You know, don't just listen to everything on YouTube or even podcasts here. I mean, really kind of check out the background of everyone that you're listening to, that you're gaining this information. Also, going back to valuation metrics, this stuff changes all the time. Conversations change all the time. What was happening one day or kind of a standard at one time may not be anymore. Industries change, technology change, economies change, everything changes, and it's very dynamic. So keep that in mind when you're thinking about the valuation, the exit, the buyer you're working with, the family relationships, everything, just everything's always changing. And keep an open mind during the process. Know in advance kind of what you want to get out of it. Don't just go in blindly and say, hey, I'm going to do this right now without kind of talking to those advisors, that tax advisor, the wealth advisor going, hey, you know, this is kind of what I want to do with my life. How much money do I need for that? How much what does the value of my company need to be with how much equity I have in it to get that? What type of terms on the sell? When I sell it, what it have to be? Have all these conversations as far in advance as possible. And I don't mean, hey, I want to sell my company tomorrow. I should have those conversations today. I mean, you know, a year, two years, when you start the company, have all these conversations as early as possible. So you're prepared in case something comes up and you don't have that option to wait. You know, going back to why people want to sell. I mean, the earlier you have these conversations, the earlier you have these things planned out, the processes, all that stuff, you're going to be happy with it. So I think that's the last thing I want kind of advice to give to people listening to this, whether they're just building their startup now, they've had a company for 20, 30 years, whatever it is, just kind of start thinking a few years down the line, 
what do you want to really happen? And start having those conversations today, start mapping out, start planning, because, well, time goes so much quicker than a lot of us realize. So I guess that's the last thing I want to take away. But I guess even more, listen to the Silicon Valley podcast. I mean, the references, the library here of information, the experts we've interviewed from Jim McKelvey, co-founder Square, Melody Perkins, founder of Canva, Patrick Lee, co-founder of Ron Tomatoes, you know, Avery Miller, co-founder of Intel Capital. The list goes on and on. It is insane the amount of information people have given our listeners on this show. So this reference library, use it, utilize it. And well, I'm just happy that I have so many people here, you know, enjoying, listening to it. And I want to thank you, Michelle, for being the host today on the Silicon Valley podcast. Well, thank you for having me as the host of the Silicon Valley podcast. But if anyone wants to learn more about this and get in touch with you, what is the best way to do it? Well, they can visit the Silicon Valley podcast.com website and subscribe on the Apple iTunes store, Spotify, any of these platforms, listen to our podcast because we always have the contact information in the show notes. Also give us a great review. It encourages us to create this information, this content for everyone out there. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Sean, S-H-A-W-N-F-L-Y-N-N. Just look for Sean Flynn Investment Banker. That's me. And you know, just if you have any questions, feel free to, to reach out. So once again, I work with companies I'm an investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capital, secondaries. I like that mid-market. I'm in Silicon Valley. And with that, you know, I think that's I think that's pretty much it. Just find me on the on the podcast website and LinkedIn. Thank you, Sean. All right. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the SiliconValleyPodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is licensed by the Investors Podcast Network. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.